The contents of this podcast episode may be triggering and emotionally challenging to some audiences due to a discussion around suicide, self-harm, depression, and or a reference to other mental health disorders. Continue at your own discretion. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Ananya Anand. Ananya is a senior at Cupertino High School who plans to talk about her recovery journey battling major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, and anorexia nervosa. She'll also share about her experiences as a young woman in the South Asian community. In the future, Ananya hopes that with pursuing neuroscience, the world's pain will be the source of her sheer drive. So welcome to the podcast, Ananya. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course. Yeah. Thank you for being here. I like to ask every guest at the beginning of the podcast, to be honest, how are you doing today? I don't get asked that question a lot, (laughs) Um, but I'd say today I'm doing pretty well. Um, It's summer, so I don't have too many stressors. Um, You know, I have like some work and research stuff that I'm doing, but um, I'm feeling pretty okay today good how are you oh I'm good thank you for asking yeah um we were just talking about how I'm getting over COVID so that's Mm -hmm. um (laughs) always a fun time but yeah considering the circumstances I'm doing pretty well and you must be since you're going to be a senior this is like the summer to relax before like college applications and everything or (laughs) I don't know what your plans are but Um, that's kind of coming up (laughs) I don't know. Relax is a heavy word. Um, I'm (laughs) doing, I mean, I'm trying to get started on college apps and kind of finish them over the Mm -hmm. summer um, before senior year starts, just because I kind of want to focus on academics for a semester. Um, So definitely I'm trying to get the college apps done this summer. So it's a lot of work, but you know, it'll pay off hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. Just take it day by day, hopefully, and Mm -hmm. you'll, you'll get them done eventually. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I'd love to get started by learning a bit about your background. Um, so we've kind of talked a little bit before about your upbringing. So I was just hoping you could share with our audience a bit more about what that was like, your um, experience growing up. Yeah, yeah. So I was born in Portland, Oregon. And so I had a pretty good childhood. You know, I had a couple of friends. I was pretty introverted, like to read, write, um, keep to myself a lot of the time. But I had a pretty decent childhood, I'd say. Um, you know, um, my parents were pretty involved in my life. My mom worked part-time, so she would hang out with us, um, every couple of days. And I have a little sister. Um, she's two years, less than two years younger than me. So we're pretty close in age, but back then it was like, it felt like a bigger age gap. Um, but you know, we would play and, um, yeah, it was a pretty good childhood. And then I moved, I moved a lot in my childhood though. So I moved a couple or to a couple different schools within my time in Oregon. And so that definitely caused me to be more introverted than I already was. Um, and so I kept to myself constantly. Um, yeah, I always did feel anxious. Um, and I think that it really heightened when, um, I moved to Arizona and so I moved to Arizona when I was about nine years old, um, nine and a half. And it was in the, at the end of 
um, third grade before fourth grade. And so, you know, it was a big change. It was my first like pretty big change. I had moved schools about three times already in Oregon. And so that wasn't as much of a change, but the whole moving States thing was different. Um, you know, contrary to what people may think, I was super excited. I was super excited for kind of a fresh start, you know, like new friends. And I didn't have a lot of friends too many to begin with in Oregon. Um, it was more of my mom's like mom friends who had kids. And so, you know, we'd kind of like mingle play dates and all. Um, but yeah, so what happened was we moved to Arizona. I, was pretty introverted there too. I think my love for reading really like sparked up there. That's what I used to do. Um, any second of free time that I had. Um, yeah. And so I switched schools a couple times there. That's when things kind of started to become really lonely. Um, I remember switching by from sixth grade or fifth grade to my middle school, sixth grade. Um, and I think that was kind of the turning point for where I just became so sad. Like I was just enveloped in sadness constantly. And I truly didn't have friends. You know, I would go to school, come home. I used to remember, or I remember walking home from the bus stop um, every day. It was about like a little less than a mile. Um, and I would just, just cry. Like on the way home, um, I was so just sad and it felt like no one was there. My dad traveled a lot during this time. He'd be out for, um, you know, months, weeks. Um, so yeah, he'd be gone, um, for a significant part of the year. And my mom was a single mom, but she worked full time. So she, um, you know, she would just do everything at home, but by everything, I mean, she'd go to work at 8am, come home at 6pm, just cook dinner for us. We'd eat, and we had babysitters kind of running our life. These babysitters would drop us at soccer. And throughout all of this, I played soccer. And yeah, I did have a team, but I never really felt, you know, too included. Um, I just felt like I was different from them, you know. So a lot of my time was spent individually and I had time to think. And I have always been high functioning. Um, grades school came pretty easy to me, thankfully. Um and so, yeah, it was no one really noticed anything because everyone was out. My dad was out. I didn't have friends to notice. My mom was out working. My sister was, you know, in her own little world. She had friends. She and I are quite the opposite. Um, she's loud and she likes to, you know, hang out with a lot of people. And um, so, yeah, we weren't exactly close at the time. But yeah, that was more. So that was my time in Arizona. And then I moved to California um, in the middle of eighth grade. And so I think that move really, you know, it changed something in the fact that I went from being sad to being suicidal and super um, just super suicidal, super depressed. And I noticed in California that the people that I was surrounded with, um, that I wasn't alone in that. A lot of people were feeling this way and it was like, wow, like, you know, other people are feeling this way. This might actually be an issue. And so that was actually when I first learned the term of depression and knew that this wasn't like, a, um, an idealistic way of living. It wasn't normal. Um, even though I had felt like it for majority of my adolescent years, um, you know, I learned that it wasn't normal. And so I think that was kind of um, like the changing point. I started acting out a little bit and acting out for me doesn't mean much, but I mean, I let my grades 
slip a little because I was like, you know, what's the point? I can't do this anymore. Um, everyone around me is struggling. Why do they get to um, let loose of their grades? And obviously my parents noticed because that was kind of an indicator of how well I was doing. You know, if as long as you have good grades, you must be happy, right? <laughs> um, it's that stereotype. So, you know, and by grades, I mean my math grade. <laughs> my geometry grade <laughs> was just tanking. Um and so my parents talked to my geometry teacher and she had apparently noticed that I wasn't, you know, engaging in class and I was evidently sad and very lonely and I still didn't have too many friends. Um, I was trying to fit in. I would change the way I dressed, the way I talked, you know, all those things. Um, and it just became sad. My parents didn't do anything about it, even though my geometry teacher um, talked to them. They were kind of like, well, what do we do? Um, so they took me, well, this one day they, um, <laughs> took my phone, went through everything, saw some texts that I had, like with some like classmates saying that like, I was sad and like, they were sad too. And, you know, they didn't approve that because they thought it was kind of the both of us engaging in bad behaviors. Um, so their solution was, um, to take me on a vacation and to kind of, brush everything under the rug, hope that it wouldn't come back. Um, and this is all solely because of their own upbringing as um, immigrants from India. Um, so they definitely didn't know what to do. Mental health wasn't um, a well-known topic. And, you know, they loved me, they cared for me, and they would do anything for me, um, even then. But it was just kind of like they didn't know what to do. And so I was just, you know, I was acting out. I wouldn't speak to them for days. I wouldn't come home until late. Like I would just go sit in the park alone. I would just, I don't know. I was so lost. Um, eighth grade, I'd say it was pretty rock bottom for me. Um, I didn't receive any treatment until this one day where I went to the doctor's office. I filled out one of those questionnaires, you know, and most of the time I lied about that, lied on the questionnaires like everyone does. Yeah. You know, this time I was so desperate that I kind of just wanted um, anyone to notice. So I actually told the truth on one of those questionnaires. My doctor talked to me. She's super sweet. She, um, you know, told me to meet a therapist, forcefully told me. And so I think the force is why I was adamant. And so I didn't go see the therapist or I did well, while I just sat there and, you know, my parents were like, you know what, if she's just going to sit there as pro therapy is probably like not going to work. It's a social construct, you know, we don't need this. Um, and so we went to Thailand and took a vacation the summer before a freshman year, um, and, you know, hopefully my parents hoped that it would brush everything under the rug. Lo and behold, it didn't. <laughs> but yeah, so I think I'm, I'm like giving you too much right now. <laughs> no, no, so that's sorry. great. <laughs> I appreciate the details. Was there like something, I know you mentioned like moving around a lot and that the eighth grade year seems to be like a big transition year. So I'm wondering, like, do you think that transition was kind of like the triggering, the trigger point of you experiencing like suicidal ideation or do you think there's something else or maybe a combination of things? Yeah. Um, so the culture of the Bay area is heavy. It is heavy in every single aspect with pressure, social pressures, academic pressures. It's just pressures from every single area. And I think what really contributed from, you know, my feelings of sadness to like feelings of I want to be dead. Like I want to die 
was definitely like the fact that everyone else was in a way edging each other on. Um, everyone was kind of pushing each other, like, you know what, like, it wouldn't be so bad if I died, like, or casually, like, you know what, maybe I'll just take a couple pills tonight, like just super casual. Um, and like, we'd laugh about it. And, but in all actuality, people were actually suffering and it was so masked underneath the pressure of like, oh, this is normal. Um, Mm -hmm. and I was fresh to the Bay area kind of mindset. I was already, um, I lived in Oregon and Arizona in which like the school education system is definitely a lot more lax and, um, you know, different things are viewed as important. Um, so when I moved here, it was a huge cultural shock. Um, and I think that that's what kind of changed the mindset of like, I'm sad to like, no, I'm depressed. I'm chronically terminally sad. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And did your parents, it sounds like your parents based on, like you said, their upbringing, um, it was difficult for them to understand like what you were going through. Was there a turning point for them where they realized like, there is a need for mental health treatment. Um, what was that experience like? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a great question. So I think what changed was, so they did take me to therapy after that doctor's visit. Um, but it was also, they weren't forceful with it. Like they should have been in my opinion. Um, but they didn't, they also didn't know any better. They should have been forceful. They should have been like, no, every Monday you're going to therapy. Rather, it was, I took control and I was like, no, I'm never talking to this therapist ever again. Like, I'm never doing therapy. I think it's dumb. Like, I'm not going to get better, you know? So I had brainwashed them yeah. <laughs> um, and they were willing to open up. Thankfully, my parents are super good um, with opening, you know, like opening up and changing their mindsets. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the turning point actually happened when I, about a year and a half later, reached out to my mom and I was like, hey, mom. My mom and I were never really close. My mom's like my best friend now, but like um, we never were close, Um, but until the pandemic. Um, So the pandemic, I think it was March, April, April of 2020. So it had been about a year and a half because um, for timeline sake, the middle of eighth or the aftermath of eighth grade before ninth grade. So that was what the summer or 2018, I'm not sure, 2019, something like that. (laughs) But yeah, a year later is when I reached out to my mom. I was like, hey mom, like it was like 12 a.m. was one night. I was awake, I was crying. I was just super sad. And I was like, you know what? Maybe I do want to get better. Maybe I do want some help. So I was like, hey mom, like I really need help. Um, I think I want to see a therapist. And she was like, oh my gosh, I'm so grateful that you asked. And like, thank you for reaching out. And she was super encouraging. Um, and so we both kind of browsed this website um, through her like insurance. Um, and so we found a therapist and I started seeing her in May of 2020. And I still see her what this is 2022. So I love her. Um, and so, yeah, I think that was the turning point. And so talking to this therapist and getting her viewpoints and, you know, her telling my mom, you know, she probably needs more help. And it got to the point where, you know, I was in need of severe help. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of the turning point, the May, 2020 and what really turned and what really changed was me reaching out. It wasn't them. I have this very like controlling behavior, like controlling mindset. Um, 
it like nothing's going to happen until I want to do it. So mm-hmm. if they wanted to put me in therapy, I wouldn't listen. But if I want to go to therapy, then I'll listen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I understand that. I definitely have those tendencies too. Mm-hmm. I'm really glad that your parents were receptive though to you yeah. reaching out. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times some parents will kind of brush it off. Like maybe mm-hmm. like your parents did originally and we're like, let's take a trip instead. <laughs> so I'm glad yeah. they listened and actually, you know, put in the work to find a therapist for you. And mm-hmm. it was nice. That was like a collaborative effort. I know you've also mentioned that you struggle with anorexia. So I was wondering mm-hmm. if you wouldn't mind sharing a bit about how that played into things as well. Yeah, absolutely. So anorexia was kind of a newer thing, meaning the habits that I developed were kind of newer. I'd always been very like conscious of my body, but that comes with being a girl, right? (laughs) Unfortunately in the society. But um, so my parents are both marathon runners. They both love to run, super health freaks. Um, I hadn't tried like an Oreo until I was 15, like 14, 15, like (laughs) two years ago. It was you know, I was sheltered from all these foods. We had never had fast food. It was a rarity to get McDonald's. Like I could count on my, like on three fingers, how many times I had McDonald's like before the pandemic and this 2020 era, it was just, they were super health freaks, like super health conscious. Um, we would have quinoa instead of rice every day. Um, you know, rice was seen as bad carbs, um, whole wheat bread. And even then that was a rarity, things like that. Um, but they didn't know what they were doing was harmful. That's the Mm -hmm. thing. They just thought it was like a lifestyle. We're being healthy. We want to make our kids feel healthy. And it was never like body focused, you know, most of the time, most of the time Um, it was never like, okay, you need to be skinny. None of that. And I was already pretty active kid along with my sister. We both played soccer um, since we were like five little. Um, And so sports and like staying fit and healthy was always something ingrained in our, um, kind of lifestyle. So, you know, occasionally there would be comments like very occasionally once a month or something where my parents would be like, Hey, like you should probably get back to working out. Like you probably gained a couple pounds. Um, and so it was a lot of these buildup of like, you know, they stopped doing this after they, after they kind of noticed that I was visibly sad, they probably kind of had like an inkling that maybe she's also sad about her appearance and stuff like that. Um, but you know, all these social standards, I saw my people at school in eighth grade, like around me, um, skipping lunch a lot. And so I would do the same and my weight fluctuated, um, as a normal, you know, teenager's body should. Um, but I think when it actually became a problem was over the pandemic. And I know a lot of people can relate to this. Um, it's kind of sad actually, but 2020, um, you know, I got the therapist in May. And so, a couple days after May, I was actually, what really changed it was TikTok. I was scrolling through TikTok and people were like, I'm going to try the Chloe Ting challenge. And so I was like, you know what, I'm going to do this and I'm going to go for runs. Mind you, I was also playing soccer at this time, but on top of that, in the mornings, I would wake up. Well, what I would do is, um, trigger warning. (laughs) I would, you know, I would just wake up late on purpose and this would be to skip breakfast, go for a run, go for like a pretty long run to, you know, over five miles. Um, I would just run and run even though I hated running, I still hate running with a passion, but I would convince myself that, you know what, maybe this is, no, it wasn't. (laughs) Um, But I would run until my 
heart, like legs gave out my heart, my heart like started palpitating. Um, I would just run and then I would come home. It would be about like 1230 one. So it's the perfect, you know, lunchtime. And my mom would usually come out of her room. My mom stayed in her room almost the entirety of the pandemic because that's where she worked. Um, she would just sit there and work and work and work. So she would just come out at 1231 to make her lunch. My dad was in his room working and, um, sister was in her room and all of that so we would all come out at one and so that was the only kind of time where I had to show that I was eating Mm -hmm. um it slowly started as you know what I'm just gonna cut down a little bit I'm gonna start eating a little bit more like salads um smoothies or you know just just not eat um and it started escalating like that um I think so for lunch I would just eat salads and you know but then again during dinner time that would dinner time would be the hardest um dinner time was always the hardest just because I my family usually eats dinner most of the time together we don't like sit around the table traditionally and like eat dinner but we you know, grab a plate serve ourselves and then we turn the TV on and then we watch. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, it's kind of like family time, but not really, but we, we all eat dinner with the TV in front of us. Mm-hmm. So we watch TV. Um, and so that would be the time where I'd have to like either do a really good job of like hiding my food or hiding my habits, or I would genuinely eat. Um, most of the time it would be, I would eat but very small amounts. Um, and I think that that's, one of the stereotypes that people with anorexia, um, you know, have to live with, you know, a lot of people think that like they only eat salads, they only eat apples and things like that right now. But I ate like burgers. I ate all these things, the healthier versions that my parents used to make. Um, and I would eat these, but just very in like super small moderation. And I would, you know, um, cut my food, um, into small portions. I would, hide things, do whatever. Um, I became obsessed with cooking myself over the pandemic, um, because school was such a big part of my life as it is for any teen. Um, and once that was taken away, it was kind of, Oh, again, part of the control thing, you know, this control was gone. So I found control back in the kitchen and I've always loved to bake since I was little, but it went from baking to cooking like exquisite meals, but these exquisite meals were like low calorie, um, on purpose. Like I remember this one time I sat for hours and I spiral spiralized a zucchini to make mm-hmm. zoodles. Um, and so I would put like, you know, tomato sauce and it would look fancy and my parents would be impressed. Lo and behold, like that thing was probably less than a hundred calories, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it was like, I did anything and everything to hide these habits. Um, And I think I knew at this point, I was already super interested in like psychology and these things, neuroscience. So I was reading up about these things myself and kind of trying to like figure out why am I acting like this? Like, why has it become so hard to eat all of a sudden? But yeah, so that's kind of the anorexia experience. And so it just got so severe to the point where, you know, this happened in the span of what, like May, June, July, August, less than three months ish. Um, but I had dropped incredibly in weight and I wasn't, or I was already pretty, um, active, um, and healthy in my body. Um, I was fit, I was playing soccer, so I was already pretty on the lower end of the weight spectrum. Um, and so I had dropped significantly. And so it was about this time that I was feeling, you know, throughout all of this, I was feeling 
majorly suicidal, super suicidal to the point where I was thinking about acting on it. Um, and so I think when the eating habits started to get noticed was when, um, I first went to the hospital. So in May, I got the therapist and, you know, I talked to her a lot, you know, I would talk to her every week. And so the first couple of weeks were very hard, super, super hard. Um, you know, it was crying constantly, like just letting everything out. I had been holding in my sadness for four, four years almost. So it was, it was a lot. Um, and my, I had a family member, a close family member die, um, at this time too. So it was just a lot. And my dad was gone to go help with the family member's family. And, um, so he was gone and it was almost like old times where it was just my mom at home, but she was working constantly. So it was just me ultimately. And my sister and I weren't that close yet. So it was, I just felt alone. I talked to my therapist this one night and I was like, I just kind of let out that I had been thinking of suicide, like actively thinking of it. And I had a plan and it was to be executed within like the next day. Um, and so I was just desperate at that point. I knew, you know, a lot of people say, don't tell your therapist these things. You're going to be sent somewhere. Like you're going to be sent to the loony bin or whatever they call it. Um, but I was just so desperate. I needed someone to talk to and tell about how it was feeling. Um, so I ended up in the hospital and, you know, that's a whole thing in itself, but, um, after that, it kind of became more serious and I got the diagnoses that I needed, um, you know, medications started if I needed them. Um, but yeah, long story short, to bring it back to the anorexia, um, this whole first hospital trip was a trigger for a doctor's visit. Um, my mom wanted to follow up with my meds. And so she was like, let's go see your pediatrician and see what she advises. Does she have any psychiatrist recommendations? Um, so we went to see the doctor. She just took my weight. You know how they do with the doctors every time in the beginning. She was like, Hmm, this is interesting. You dropped a lot. Um, since the last time I saw you, which was in January, because, um, that was my yearly visit time. Um, and so she was like, that's interesting. Like, are you eating well? I was like, yeah, I'm eating pretty well, you know? Um, and then she was like, are you sure about that? And I was like, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm actually not eating well. Um, you know, and she was like, if you keep this up, it's going to be an eating disorder. And I think a part of me wanted it to be an eating disorder, especially when she phrased it like that. Like if you reach this weight, this weight criteria, it'll be an eating disorder. So it was kind of like some internal motivation, like, oh, I need to reach this weight. Um, so I think that's kind of, some of the flaws the healthcare system has, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but yeah, so I came back, she was like, let's have a follow-up. I want to make sure your weight doesn't get too bad because my vitals were, my heart rate was like super high and stuff. Um, so I came back like two weeks later, I was super critically low. Like I was on the verge of a heart attack and I was about to get hospitalized again, but somehow I managed to finesse my way out of that. Um, I don't know why they listen to a 15 year old, but I, I can talk <laughs> my way out of things really well. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so I convinced her to, um, let me go to Oregon and I have these two childhood friends in Oregon and I think moving away 
made me a lot closer to them. Um, I didn't appreciate them when I lived them, you know, lived in Oregon, but I appreciate them so much now that I don't live there. So yeah, I wanted to go there and I was like, Hey mom, like if we go there, like I'll eat better. Um, you know, I'll do all this, do all that. We go there, lo and behold, I lose a couple more pounds and come back to the doctor. And that's when I was like critically unstable. And so that's when I, um, got hospitalized for anorexia and got diagnosed with anorexia. Um, and so the treatment process after that is kind of what changed my entire life, but we can go on to the next question. (laughs) (laughs) So as someone who is about of South Asian descent, um, what was it like having an eating disorder? Like, did you feel like it's a different experience from someone who is not a person of color? Yeah, that's a good question as well. The stereotype for eating disorders, especially, well, I mean, when you think of an eating disorder, most people think of two things, anorexia or bulimia. And it's usually most of the time anorexia where you're super skinny and, um, or the stereotypical skinny probably white, um, super rich. Um, yeah. (laughs) Um, so to have anorexia as a person of color, especially starting off with my parents, they were in shock. I mean, they already knew that I was struggling with my mental health. Um, and they had barely heard about men. I mean, they, it's not that they hadn't heard about it, but they were like, this can't happen to my kid. Like, um, my kid's like a good kid. It wouldn't happen to her but it did. Um, and so when the eating disorder came around and my doctor first mentioned it, I remember like vividly the first time she mentioned it, that first time that we went after the suicide, um, hospital visit, um, she was, my mom was like, what? like an eating disorder. What even is that? Like that can happen to her. Like she can't have that. And my doctor was like, kind of shocked herself too. Cause she was like, you'd never heard about this. Like you've Um, This hasn't been mentioned in your household. Like you guys don't talk about healthy eating habits. Um, And my mom was like, oh, no, we do. Like we talk about healthy habits. Um, We really did. (laughs) Um, But like in the negative way, you know. So I think that's one of the biggest things. My parents weren't aware as a person in the South Asian community. My parents didn't even know that this could happen. They had never heard of any of their friends, you know, their close friends. Um, And they had just, they were just in complete shock. Um, but they were so willing to learn. My mom, of course, didn't want another thing to handle. She was like, I don't want another thing on my plate. Um, you know, she said it like that. Mm -hmm. And I remember hurting a lot after she said it like that, because she was meaning, you know, I don't want, you already have these three things. You don't need another diagnosis. So she was, she had said some hurtful things. She was like, you don't need to keep doing this. Don't keep losing weight. Like, let's keep, let's keep eating better. Um, it was just these stereotypes of you can't have an eating disorder. You you just can't. Um, and a part of that like drove me to want to have an eating disorder more and more. Um, but yeah, I think that that kind of sums up what it was to have like an eating disorder in the South Asian community. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for answering that. And thank you for being so open about your experience in general. I know it's not like super fresh, but I know this all has happened in what the past two years. So yeah. I just appreciate your honesty um, being so open about it. And I also appreciate your self-awareness. I feel like maybe that's common with people who have eating disorders, but like you were aware of like 
what you were doing, like the actions you were taking. So I'm curious if someone out there who's listening may be experiencing similar um, habits um, or signs of an eating disorder, what advice would you give them for seeking help? The one main thing that I would say is that you're never going to be sick enough for help to get the help that you want. Mm-hmm. I was literally like my heart rate was super low and already before I was underweight or even close to it, um, my heart rate was already just off the charts. It just wasn't stable, but I didn't feel sick enough. I was thinking, you know what, I'm going to get to X amount of weight. And once I get there, that's when I'll be sick enough. That's when I'll stop. And that's when I'll like receive the help. But once I got to that weight mere like two days later, I was like, you know what, we can go a little bit lower. Like, let's get to this weight. And once we get there, I got there. And I think the next day is when I was hospitalized, you know, I still didn't feel sick enough in the hospital itself. I was planning, let's go home and get to this weight. So it was just like, to at what point is your mind going to be satisfied? It's not until you're zero, until you're evaporated, you're gone. Um, and I think that that's something that one of my providers said, like, you won't be satisfied until you're just gone because you're so sick and you're, you just don't want to be here because for me, at least my, the anorexia was a, um, a subset of the depression. Depression always came first. I was super sad all the time. So I kind of needed like an outlet for the sadness. So I looked to controlling my intake, food intake. Um, but yeah, so I think, you know, the advice, the biggest piece of advice I would give is that, um, you know, you're never going to be sick enough. Take the help when you can get it, reach out as early as possible. You don't want an eating disorder. I think I told myself that I wanted one, um, when I was like super bad into these habits, I told myself that I wanted one, but you don't want one really don't because what comes after it, what comes in the recovery process is going to be one of the hardest things that you've ever done to have to go against the human mind and the human instinct is the hardest thing one can possibly do. Yeah. I love that advice. Speaking of recovery, um, I was hoping we could dig a little deeper into, um, the help you received for mental health. So what was it like receiving treatments or seeking treatments? Um, were you scared about that? And any, did any other feelings come up for you? Yeah. Um, <laughs> scared is, I mean, an understatement. <laughs> I was terrified. Um, I think the first going back to May of 2020 when I first, or like March, sorry, March of 2020, when I asked for therapy, um, from my mom, I was so scared. And like, you know, looking back and like analyzing those feelings, like, why was I scared? You know, what was it that made me scared? I think it was the fear of not being sick enough. Once again, like you don't need, you don't need this help. Like there's nothing that you've gone through. That's that traumatic. Um, comparing myself to like what other people have gone through. That's something that made me terrified. Um, my mom's reaction, you know, I didn't want her to be like, no, like you don't need therapy. Like let's go on another family vacation. Like you don't need this. Um, um, yeah. So I think that's also what made me terrified. And I think, oh, after therapy, you know, what else became hard was asking for, or telling my therapist, like, I need to go to the hospital. I need somewhere that can keep me safe, or I'm going to literally jump out, like jump off a roof or something. Mm -hmm. I was scared of her reaction. I was scared that it was going to be overblown, which 
it is something that kind of needs to be overblown if you get to that point. But I was mostly just scared of like, you know, I'm going to disappoint them. You know, I can't disappoint them. I need to have my perfect grades. I need to be the perfect daughter. I need to be the perfect sister. I cannot disappoint them. But nothing about mental illness is disappointing. It's Mm -hmm. unfortunately, it's part of you. And it's, well, even fortunately, I mean, I'm fortunate to have my mental illnesses and I wouldn't have it any other way. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I was definitely scared. Like all seven or eight times I reached out most of the time or most of the other times I was forced into it, but I was definitely scared. And I think the scariness slowly goes away as you get more used to reaching out. I'm just kind of curious because a lot of this took place during the pandemic. What do you think it was harder to find help during that time or was it easier because everything was so virtual? Well, the therapy stuff, that was pretty easy. Um, Finding a therapist. Fortunately, I am so lucky to have insurance and good health insurance and my parents are able to cover and pay for it and their work is amazing. Um, So I think that definitely made it easier because through my mom's, she works at Facebook and they have this amazing insurance company who um, covers any mental health treatment. So I think that that was, I was super grateful in that part. Um, The more like public healthcare system, that was a lot harder. Mm -hmm. My parents had, you know, they were willing to do anything, pay anything to get help, get me better or help me get better. (laughs) Um, But that doesn't mean that the public healthcare system could even navigate towards that way. You know, Mm -hmm. they were booked. Yep. eating disorders the eating so the hospital that I went to had only about 40 beds um at for adolescents and um I one of the reasons that I was also sent back you know my doctor that day that I was convincing her to let me to go to Oregon instead of being hospitalized she was also more okay with it because there wasn't even a bed at mm. the hospital I remember wow. her calling and they were like no she's not like she's like one heartbeat or one heartbeat per minute away from being super critically stable. And we can't afford to give that bed to her versus someone who is like critical. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was, it was like, wow, like they're not going to take me because I'm not sick enough. They're not going to take me because they don't have enough space. Like we should never have that problem. Um, But I'm also so blessed and lucky to say that like my parents have been able to afford everything and Mm -hmm. I have been able to receive this treatment. Um, I do know that um, during the pandemic, the wait lists for eating disorder places were constantly full. Um, I went to this super intensive 10 week treatment place and the wait list on that was like I, I can't even say like a hundred more than a hundred people long. And luckily I got to the front of the line almost the day after I was um, discharged from the hospital because that's how critical I was. But so mm-hmm. basically how mental health systems do kind of this treatment thing is how critical you are, which I don't know, you know, I get it, but I also don't get it um, because critical has this quantitative aspect to it. And right. if you, tell people this is the quantitative aspect, they're going to want to get to that point where they can actually get the help. Mm -hmm. Um, So I found that very flawed pandemic or no pandemic, but I do know that the pandemic definitely, um, you know, it, 
<laughs> it didn't help. It didn't help with the accessibility of treatment. Yeah. yeah, that's what I kind of figured. I was just curious from your perspective what that was like. Yeah. Can you share a bit about your experience with intensive outpatient treatment? IOP was, I've done too many IOPs to even count. <laughs> After the first um, suicide attempt hospital thing um, back in May or July, June, June-ish, um, I went to an IOP. They decided to like, you know, they were like, you need to keep going with the treatment. Um, it'll be a little less intensive, but it's outpatient. Outpatient means it's outside of like a facility or outside of like a hospital um, setting. It'll be in another facility, but with the pandemic, everything was virtual. So my IOP experience wasn't exactly the best because mm -hmm. I was sitting at home in front of a computer and they were lecturing me on how to shower um, every day, but I was high functioning. So right. I would shower every day and I would not to mention I'm a clean freak organized. So I would do these things, you know, they didn't need to tell me to do my schoolwork, but um, that was one of the experiences. The other one that I went to for the eating disorder, I went to an IOP and a PHP, which is partial hospitalization and then um, intensive outpatient. So for um, this program that I went to, it was partial hospitalization first, um, and then it's intensive outpatient. So I did the PHP program for, I think it was eight, seven or eight weeks. And then I graduated to the IOP, which is um, two weeks or three weeks. It just depends on how long you need to stay there. But my experience at um, the IOP there was a lot better because it was in person, um, so I'm assuming that, you know, if the pandemic wasn't a thing, this is how most IOPs would be. It was super interactive. I would go in there at about 3.30 PM. We would, I would talk to other kids, do process group, um, and get to like make friends through that because I was still introverted. Nothing really changed about that. In fact, it made me crawl into my shell more with the pandemic. <laughs> um, but I was able to talk to people at the, in the process groups. Um, I was able to hear their experiences, how they were doing every day. And then we wouldn't just talk about these things. You know, we would go outside, go for walks, um, do things that were actually educational and meaningful, you know, talk about proper nutrition and like the balanced food groups. And I think these were things that were of more importance to me because of the eating disorder. You know, I got to be introduced to things like eating um, a good amount of fat every day is super important. Like you need fat. It's okay to have candy. It's okay to have chips. Like, in fact, it's good to have these things in moderation. Everything's good for you in moderation. They would teach us these things. We would do yoga. We would go outside for walks. I think I already mentioned that, but yeah, it was super um, therapeutic and needed. Yeah, that's awesome. Sounds like a, I'm glad there was a good experience at the end of the road. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I know, I know it can be a journey for a lot of people just based on how our mental health system is set mm -hmm. up. So I'm glad that you yeah. found a program that was a good fit for you. Are there any tools that you still use that you learned from your IOP program that you still use today? Not this exact IOP program, but after that program, I think a couple months later, I went to a DBT program, which is um, dialectical behavioral therapy. And so it was a different type of therapy than what they used at the IOPs, which is CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, and so with the use of DBT, it was a lot more of looking into the future than being in the present, right? So the present pain, it was 
supposed to go away in the future. So we would kind of create a world in the future where there is no pain. Um, and I think looking to the future really helped me a lot instead of, you know, staying in the moment is nice, but um, also looking to the future in the long term of like what's going to happen is a lot better sometimes when you're stuck in this such a crappy mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, and so certain skills that I took away from this DVT place were, you know, I, I have really sweaty hands when I get anxious. Um, and just even thinking about sweaty hands is going to make me sweat. <laughs> um, but a lot of these things would be diverted to things like here's like a fidget toy. And we made this, I have a DVT box in my room. Um, it's over there, but, um, my DVT box is filled with little things that involve different senses and to kind of help with panic attacks. You know, I have like a mason jar sitting like right in front of me. It has like glitter and water. Mm-hmm. And so as the glitter and the water settles, my worries are supposed to like settle with it if I focus on it. Um, small little cheesy things that you think won't help until you try them. Mm-hmm. Um, with DBT, a lot of it is um, hands-on and you need to actually involve your senses. And so like skills that I still use today are there's this thing called the five, four, three, two, one method where when you're kind of in this moment of like panic, not even just panic, but just like sensory overload, too much is happening in your mind right now. You just want to, you just need some distraction. Um, you just think about five things you can see around you, four things you can hear, three things you can touch, two things you can smell, one thing you can taste. Um, and so you just look around your room and it kind of distracts you and um, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I love that you have like a physical toolbox pretty mm-hmm. much that like can help you through <laughs> different scenarios. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you kind of mentioned that there isn't, you don't consciously think of like the future, but is there something during this time that kind of kept you moving forward um, despite the challenges you faced? First, it was I'm living for my parents and I'm living for my sister first at first. Like those would be the three things, three main people that would keep me here every day. And then, you know, I would think about why am I living for everyone else but me? Like I don't want to live, but I want to live for everyone else, you know? Um, And so I would get fixed up on that thought. So ultimately it became, you know what, I'm going to find a reason to live for me. I want to find something that I want to do in the future. And I want to be a mom. (laughs) I want to have kids so badly um, in the future. But I think that that's one of the biggest things that kept me going. I want to have a kid. And, you know, it also developed into this mindset of like, once I have a kid, I can go back to being suicidal. But Then again, once you have a kid, then there's that like goal of what's next Then I would probably create, I'm looking into the future, like I'll probably create a goal of like, I want to see my kid graduate high school. And then once it reaches that point, I want to travel like to all seven continents. I don't know, (laughs) something like that, you know, but something tangible um, instead of like, I want to be happy because that's intangible. You don't have a timeline for that. Um, you can't exactly measure that. So I think having a tangible goal is something that really, really helped me. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I love talking to you and hearing all about your journey to recovery. I, again, appreciate you being so open and honest about it. It's the whole point of the podcast, but still, you know, I gotta I have to say <laughs> it. Um, but if you if you do want to share anything like social media or things that you're working on or just suggestions or resources, I'll give you the platform now to do so. Yeah. Um, so I do talk a lot about mental health on on my like personal Instagram, but I'm also like still in high school. So I post like, you know, the typical high school pictures, but you can find me if you do want to at my name, Ananya, A-N-A-N-Y-A-A, two A's dot seven four. Um, there's just an extra A, but yeah, (laughs) if you guys want to follow me on Instagram. Um, but yeah. And then I do post on TikTok. It's literally the same username. Um, but I post a lot about mental health, mostly jokes, sometimes like actual experiences, but I post a lot about recovery and I truly, you know, I hate when people say it gets better, but it gets easier. I don't believe it gets better because I still struggle these days. Like I still struggle, but it gets easier. You know, I don't struggle as much as I did. Um, but yeah. And so, you know, I think one of the most important things for me throughout all of this is that I've been able to channel um, the experiences and the pain and everything that I went through into something more positive. And so I do things like advocacy and um, research projects and research. And I really want to go into neuroscience at the moment. I don't know. It changes a lot, changes every day. (laughs) But, you know, this kind of chapter in my life is like, I really want to go into neuroscience and give back to the community that helped me so greatly during my times. Um, And yeah, I think the biggest thing is just find something bigger than yourself and latch on to that. Cool. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you being on the podcast. Um, And I hope we get a chat again soon. Maybe we can do like a follow-up episode in the future. Yes, absolutely. I love that. All right. Well, have a great rest of your day, Ananya. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for tuning into the To Be Honest podcast brought to you by Momentum for Health. We're so happy to be able to share the personal behavioral health and wellness stories of youth and young adults in Santa Clara County. If you live in Santa Clara County and are in need of behavioral health assistance, please call 800-704-0900. You can also reach the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline 24-7 by dialing or texting 988. That's it for now, but we'll be back in just two weeks with another episode. Bye!